Good morning, Pierce. Uh, it is such a pleasure to have you as my first guest on this podcast. Pierce, um, I know that you are uh, the, uh, you know, you're responsible for data privacy as it relates to uh, um, Carleton University. And so I'm going to ask you to start by telling us more about yourself, your job at the university, give us more information. Absolutely. Thank you, Heloise. Uh, good morning and hi, everybody. Um, so my name is Pierce Wajonka. I am the privacy manager at Carleton University. Uh, I've been in this role for over three years now. Uh, prior to that, I spent uh, just over eight years with the federal government of Canada in various privacy management roles. Um, our office is located within the secretariat. I report into the office of the general counsel. Um, we have a direct reporting relationship to the president as well. There is also uh, some, some considerations around the fact that I am a delegated authority under some uh, privacy legislation in Canada, so I do have, uh, let's call it, decision-making powers uh, with respect to any privacy operations we do at the university. Well, that's very helpful because, uh, uh, you know, as you know, when we're dealing with projects that um, involve some issue of around data privacy, um, or access to information, we are we're going to come to you to give us uh, a review and assessment of, of that contract. Uh, so uh, your office fulfills that role. So maybe you can just give us some understanding of what it means, what the, you know, elaborate a little bit for us on what these provincial and national policies are that you uh, follow and that you are uh, an authority on. Absolutely. So Primarily at the uh, at Carleton, we have the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act. That would be what we primarily fall under for uh, privacy regulations uh, in Ontario. So uh, FIPA, which is the acronym for the law I just described, it is an Ontario piece of legislation. So it's it's uh, it's responsible by the Ontario Legislature. There is also a uh, Information and Privacy Commission of Ontario, who is our regulator. Again, our primary primary regulator. Uh, so if we were ever to do anything wrong under FIPA, it would be uh, the Information Privacy Commissioner of Ontario who would come in and do an investigation um, and determine whether we did or did not violate the law. Um, as well, there's they have order making powers and client issuing powers. So it, it is kind of important that we do try to follow principles. So. Um, if you if you violate the law in good faith, then there there is sort of this indemnification that can occur. But if you do violate the law in bad faith, there is no indemnification. So um, a good faith uh, violation would be you accidentally send an email to uh, another person as opposed to the individual you meant to send it to. That would be something that was an error. There's no issues with that. Uh, when we talk about bad faith, we're we're considering you know someone who's actually maliciously gone into a database or whatever to. Uh, put that up on the internet or disclose those types of information. The second legislation that Carleton uh, is is somewhat privy to is the uh, Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act. Now, this is a federal legislation that comes through Canada's Parliament. Um, it is regulated by the Federal Office uh, of the Privacy Commissioner for Canada. Um, the reason why I say we have some loose responsibility under PIPEDA is is that. PIPEDA governs commercial activities uh, that organizations are uh, taking part in. 
it's very important to note that they don't define what a commercial activity technically is. Um, so for instance, even if you're offering products for free, that could still be considered uh, an activity of a commercial nature. Um, so generally speaking, while we do primarily fall under FIPA, some of our operations could in fact actually fall under PIPA. Um, for example, we would consider parking uh, to be potentially more of a PIPA activity than a FIPA activity. Um, athletics, basically anything that wouldn't be core to university business. Um, so, you know, we do want to look at PIPA because of the way that the university's integrated operations work. Uh, we just want to make sure that we are also following that federal legislation and, and so that we can, again, should there be an investigation that comes from the federal level, uh, we can at least demonstrate our commitment and accountability towards that. What is different to note about the federal legislation, though, is, is that the commissioner does not have fine issuing powers um, or order making powers. Uh, all they can do is make uh, recommendations to organizations who violate um, the federal legislation. If they did want to take a matter further, they actually have to go through a federal court process and uh, and start the review from a de novo perspective, aka being they have to completely start the investigation from scratch. So. Um, FIPA does have a little bit more teeth, and, and we certainly want to make sure that our provincial regulator is appeased more than the federal regulator, let's call it. There is one last legislation I do want to quickly touch about, um, and that's with respect to the anti-spam, so Canada anti-spam legislation. That deals with uh, sending commercial electronic messages. The university is largely exempt because of a lot of the activities we do. However, anytime you want to promote a third party or um, goods or services that a third party may be promoting, and let's call it a newsletter or any other type of electronic message that we may be sending, um, we do require consent from the person receiving that message to, uh, to send that message. So I just want to uh, elaborate on that a little bit as well, just because it is a legislation that Carlton is subject to, and we do have to abide by that as well. That's very helpful. So, uh, uh, but when I, w we're going to go on to talk about international um, uh, regulations. When we talk about international regulations, are we mainly concerned uh, with FIPA or with uh, PIPIDA? So when we consider the international landscape, again, we primarily are a, a creature of provincial legislation. Um, so we're, you know, we are a provincial public authority. So our default would be public legislation. However, um, uh, sorry, provincial public legislation. However, let's say there's an international treaty or there's an international code of conduct or um, a memorandum of understanding uh, that is struck between two organizations that are, let's say, uh, across the ocean from each other, or even in, in, in a, a transnational with a U.S. body, um, we, we may be opening up ourselves to the uh, applicability of that region's legislation. So, for example, if we're doing business in Europe, we may open ourselves up to uh, uh, the general data protection regulation. If we're doing business in California, we may open ourselves up to the Californian Consumer Protection Act. So, um, you know, again, as a provincial institution, we have to follow FIPA first and foremost. But just because we're told these are the baseline rules we must follow, that doesn't mean that as an organization we can't put more uh, let's call it self-imposed rules in place to start complying with those international data protection regulations that are starting to slowly creep into our integrated operations. 
That gives us a segue to to talking a little bit about uh, Europe, um, because uh, one of the reasons we we you and I work together quite often is because of our um, uh, partnerships and agreements with European uh, universities and UK universities. So let's step back uh, here now and. Uh, Piers, can you explain to me a little bit more about GDPR? Why, uh, what is it for and why is it so um, uh, restrictive in terms of our interaction with uh, these universities in Europe and UK? It's a great question. So we'll start off with what GDPR is. So GDPR, again, another acronym, uh, privacy lives in the world of acronyms, it seems. So the General Data Protection Regulation is a European Union uh, piece of legislation. So it's important that it applies to all uh, all, all countries within the European Union. Um, and there, it can also apply to uh, some of the countries in the European Economic Area as well. So the, there's a couple that are outside of the main block. Um, what the legislation is, or what this regulation is, is that it applies to the processing of personal data full stop. So any organization that processes personal data um, could be subject to, uh, I'm sorry, of European subjects could be subject to uh, the general data protection regulation. Um, so a, a great example would be, we do have partners over in the UK or in Europe, uh, universities, and so their processing of student information or their processing of research data um, would most likely be subject to GDPR because they are processing the information of, of uh, European data subjects, which is what the legislation refers to um, citizens of European countries as. So that's basically what the law does is it protects the personal data that's being collected by all these different organizations and it's important to note that it's not just public bodies or government entities it can apply to um, the uh, tourism agency based out of Liverpool it can apply to um, the bread maker that is uh, somewhere in the middle of uh, Bavaria so it's it's I, you know I do want to kind of call that out because people think that oh GDPR is for the big bad companies like Marriott and Google um, and what it, it, it's, that's not in fact what it is, it, it applies across the board. There are certain exemptions that can come into play, but um, people tend to forget that there are smaller organizations or organizations like universities that are also subject to these and it's uh, to this legislation or this regulation. And it's not so easy um, when you consider again, the integrated operations of a university. So when we get into the restrictiveness of it, um, one of the, in my opinion, one of the big restrictions is that the definition of personal data is so broad and expansive that it captures, uh, it, it captures elements that in Canada we don't consider to be personal information. So a great example would be first name, last name at uh, universityofliverpool.com. That in Liverpool at the university, they have to consider that as personal information, whereby Pierce White Junka uh, at cunet.carlton.ca is not considered personal information. So there's one example of the restriction that can come into play, especially when all you're doing is communicating with uh, your counterpart in the UK or the, or the European Union. Technically, even just that email exchange that's occurring needs to have um, outrageous clauses and uh, legal slash contractual obligations that sometimes Canadian organizations just don't feel comfortable uh, responding to. So now we're in 
in muddy waters. Um, and you've explained to me that that these very this very restrictive definition of what is personal data puts us in a really difficult situation. What 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 can we you know what what would we be what accountability would we be held to if, for instance, I don't know that person got an email back from the professor at Carleton University. What's the offense here? Right. So in from the legal perspective, the offenses is that we don't have, uh, depending on the way you're looking at this, the situation and, and the contract of the project that's uh, in play, but um, arguably we don't have the proper uh, adequate safeguards as GDPR refers to them as um, for the processing of that quote unquote personal data. Again, I don't consider it personal data or we don't consider it personal data over in North America, but in, in Europe they do. So let's just assume that the European counterpart didn't like the way that uh, our, we were managing our emails, they could in theory file a complaint to their national regulator. So in the UK it would be the Information Commissioner's Office. And the ICO could, in theory, open up an investigation against Carleton University regarding the way we manage our emails within Office 365, for instance. If we were found to have violated GDPR, so we did not have consent or we did not have the appropriate safeguards in place via contractual obligations, we could face a fine. Now, the fines under GDPR range from 1% to 4% of your of the organization's global annual turnover. So when you, when you take that step back, the organization is Carleton University writ large. It's not going to just be Carleton International or um, the International Student Services Office. It's, it's the university. And when you look at what our revenues are, um, our annual revenues are, that's, that's quite a substantial amount of money that we would have to pay for, again, a first name, last name at insertcompany.com here. Um, so that's that's really where we're where that risk in lies is that it, it only takes that one person to make that complaint and all of a sudden we may end up in uh, a regulatory and international kind of uh, jurisdictional battle as to whether we actually do or do not apply and are subject to you know the the GDPR when in Canada that even wouldn't be personal information. So then this when we agree to have a, a contract with a university in the in the EU or in UK, we and you, 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 you're guiding us, you, you're providing certain equivalent legislation, uh, which we are saying protects us and we are asking them to agree to allow us to be, you know, equipped by our own legislation, meaning we following uh, our own regulations. Do you think this is the the answer? I mean, we have come across situations where this hasn't finally created an, a pathway for us to to come to agreement with these universities. What can be what can we do to overcome these challenges? Uh, are there are there ways that uh, you know ethics clearances or consent protocols that we can use um, to help navigate these very difficult agreements? Another great question, and there there are different options that are available, um, and the options will vary depending on uh, again what the GDPR refers to as uh, volume of processing. 
Um, so there, the GDPR does speak to this, whether processing is occasional or frequent. Um, it, it also makes this reference to the volume of data being processed. So the options, you know, if, if we're, again, if we're just dealing with, you need to email your uh, UK counterpart just to discuss, uh, uh, you know, the contract you're working on. And uh, aside from first name, last name, um, there is no other personal data being processed. You may be able to rely on explicit consent. So, you know, just, just that, that agreement with an informed consent to the UK partner stating, listen, you'll be emailing your partner at Carleton University in Canada. They use Microsoft Outlook as their email provider. Um, these are all the uh, safeguards they have in place internally as well as with the service provider to manage your personal data. Are you okay with the fact that this this transfer will occur? So that would be one one option that we can pursue. And, and you you raised ethics protocols as another option uh, whereby you have an institutional research board or a research ethics board, um, the REB or IRB, depending on the institution you're coming from. Um, you have a body of, of subject matter experts effectively looking at these exact same issues. Has the consent been informed enough? Um, is there sufficient notice to the data subject? Does the data subject have the right to withdraw? So these are all uh, considerations that a GDPR is also looking at. And if we can assume that a project is being cleared by a quorum of um, scientists, subject matter experts in uh, you know the legal field, in the privacy field, and in the cybersecurity field, that, that you know a, a group of, of individuals like that ought to be able to say, "Yep, this is there's no risk here. You should be able to be able to you should be able to move forward with this transfer." So again, within this ethics corners protocol, you would have this informed consent that you are presenting to the data subjects now. This again goes back to the volume of processing question though, whereby let's say you're doing uh, interviews with 10 data subjects, you most likely will be able to rely on express consent. However, uh, if you were dealing with a thousand um, part, uh, research participants, then that volume of processing threshold may be met and then you may need to default to the more legal contractual measures that we're now being faced with. So the the things that we can do as individuals and then institutionally that we have to be conscious of when we when we're engaging with these agreements. Can you talk a little bit to the issue of adequacy in terms of the law? Our university being adequate in terms of the law. I mean, if we're trying to convince our partners that we are a public authority within Canada with regards to um, management of of personal data is there is there is this another leg we can stand on another you know opportunity for us definitely so you you actually raised two legs we can stand on interestingly enough so uh, I will draw on the first leg which would be the fact that as you mentioned we are a public body um, I, I alluded to that at the beginning of the podcast as well that we are we are a provincial creature uh, from the provincial legislature so we can rely on the fact that we are a public authority or a public body. And I had made reference to uh, potentially just relying on an MOU as your legally binding instrument. Um, so again, GDPR uh, makes this derogation or makes this reference to the fact that if the, per if the personal data 
again, we're dealing with first name, last name at company.com, uh, that personal data is being transferred outside of uh, the UK or the EU, uh, and it's being transferred to another public body, you can rely on what the legislation refers to as legally binding instruments. So whether that's an, a legitimate contribution agreement uh, from, yeah, for instance, a, a, uh, a funded science agency, or that's an MOU that is just struck between the two organizations, those would be considered those legal binding instruments that you may be able to rely on. Um, so within these instruments, you still need to identify appropriate safeguards, uh, data protection clause, uh, data protection clauses around how we're going to protect that language, what would happen if there was a breach. Um, but they're not as restrictive of, as the standard contractual clauses, which are based in law and effectively cannot be changed. They can only be added to. So, you know, relying again on our public authority uh, status is, or and for any university, really, that is a publicly funded university and is recognized by the their provincial legislature because this isn't just a Carleton thing. This is this is a university wide uh, situation, and even colleges. Um, that's that's one one leg we can stand on. So. Um, for instance, at Carleton, we have a data protection agreement that we can supply with a standard MOU. Um, and for our purposes, we would we would say that that's efficient and uh, effective for that transfer and protection of data. The second leg is, as you mentioned, this adequacy status. So again, GDPR, another derogation, um, makes reference to countries that are considered adequate. What this means is that there was a review done uh, or there would be a review done by the European Data Protection Board. In our case, it was the previous uh, European Commission uh, or, or was the, the previous, like I should say, Article uh, 29 Working Party um, under the old directive where we obtained our adequacy. So what they look at is they look at a country's basically human rights records, whether the privacy legislation um, is sufficient enough to maintain and meet the human right privacy obligations to European citizens, Canada has been deemed adequate uh, with respect to um, every organization that collects, uses, or discloses personal information in the course of a commercial activity. Uh, so what that means is, is that we are considered adequate so long as the transfer of data is for a quote-unquote commercial purpose. Uh, that means that, again, we wouldn't need to sign the restrictive standard contractual clauses. We would then just relate back to our original, again, data protection agreement or data protection clauses we want to build into uh, the, the contribution agreement or whatever, whatever mechanism is allowing this partnership to occur. But earlier you referred to the FIPIDA as covering let's say, the commercial activities such as parking at Carlton or, you know, athletics. What about the research component of, uh, it's also really, re uh, it's a university service in a sense, or does it have to be contractually um, set up as a service agreement? Or can we, or can any legally binding document be, be considered uh, a university service then under FIPIDA? That's another great question, again, because the legislation doesn't necessarily describe uh, a commercial nature, 
Um, it is it is open to interpretation, and so um, that's you know I I made references to parking because that's you know that's clearly a, a money situation where someone needs to pay money in order to to park on campus. With respect to research agreements, there is that you know there is a financial consideration, potentially revenue generating uh, consideration as well. Um, so. That's why you know adequacy isn't necessarily it's it's a leg we can stand on, but it's it's kind of like that last leg we would stand on before we're we're absolutely forced in signing those restrictive standard contractual clauses. Um, but I would you know I would rely on a blend of being a public authority using data protection contractual language uh, in the MOU or whatever this this legally binding instrument is. And again, the fact that we are a Canadian organization that prior to 2006, we were subject to PIPEDA and we had to follow PIPEDA um, because universities in Ontario did not become subject to provincial privacy legislation until the summer of 2006. So we were already following PIPEDA. We were already considered uh, as an adequate organization. Therefore, when we consider that FIPA is more restrictive than PIPEDA, it is it can be argued that we are adequate under PIPEDA. Well, you've really helped me understand this uh, a great deal. Um, it seems though that we, um, we're becoming data diplomats. Um, do you think, and are there other moves uh, afoot that um, you know, could ease the way for universities uh, to um, for under a framework agreement, um, because I must say these agree these uh, negotiations tend to take a lot of time. What what do you know about um, what moves are afoot to to help us uh, function more <laughs> efficiently under this legislation, Piers? There are a lot of uh, recent and moving developments, kind of all around this data diplomacy uh, topic you you describe. Um, I'll talk strictly about Canada and what's happening in Canada. So we have um, uh, currently at the federal level, there is Bill C-11, which is, uh, it is the update to PIPEDA. So keeping in mind that PIPEDA is 20 years old um, as of this year. So it is a fairly old piece of legislation. So we have Bill C-11, which has been tabled um, to update PIPEDA again, to kind of make it more in line with current GDPR and other uh, creeping international data protection legislation, like I mentioned, the California Consumer Protection Act is is basically a California GDPR. Um, there's there's other U.S. states that are moving that way as well. We have Brazil with their LGPD. Um, it's it's basically Brazil's GDPR. So we need to we we rec we as a country um, legislatively have recognized that we do need to step up and and get some better privacy protections in play. My criticisms about C11 are that it doesn't actually go far enough, um, and so effectively we would be almost be back to the drawing board. And whether that would be considered adequate or not, I I couldn't tell you at this uh, moment in time. But there's an opportunity there whereby um, we can get those. If we being you know university higher education, um, we can lobby the government to get those necessary clauses or changes into this new legislation so that we might be able to rely on adequacy um, and and not have to worry about standard contractual clauses. So that is one option. Uh, 
little little bit far out again considering we have a minority government at the federal level this bill has stalled at uh committee um and given you know I, as always with a minority government there's always that risk that we will be uh in a snap election uh which means that the legislation or the bill would effectively die off and we we'd have to go back to the to the writing or the starting board so that's what's happening federally. Provincially, uh, the Ontario government actually did public consultations on the new um, provincial uh, private sector legislation. Uh, I, contrib- I contributed to those uh, consultations as well to say, hey, listen, don't forget about the universities and that um, while we're covered by FIPA, we have commercial operations, we have certain uh, arrangements that we do uh, internationally or across the border um, that may need to rely on the protections in this private sector legislation that we currently don't have in FIPA. So again, there's there legislatively, we there are different uh, avenues and options that are being pursued to make this a little bit easier for organizations in Ontario um, to, to continue doing business uh, uh, internationally. Uh, again, and this is a competitive thing because we you know, the province doesn't want to lose its competitive advantage internationally in getting its products and market out there. So that's, that's the legislative side of things. Now, GDPR refers to codes of conduct or international standards. Um, this, the, and then the bill C-11 also makes reference to uh, relying on code of conducts or, or standards, uh, so on and so forth. So absent of the legislation changing um, and keeping uh, up in pace with the, the ever-changing landscape of data privacy and technology, we can rely on standards or codes of conduct. So when I say standards, I'm, I'm talking about ISO standards, so International Standards Organization standards. Um, we have the 27,000 series, which is for information uh, security. Um, there's other specific ISO standards that relate to, uh, specifically to privacy management. Um, but I can, can at the Canadian level, uh, there are two standards bodies right now working on let's call it that that bridging the gap of a standard to from Canadian legislation to European legislation. So that standard's being uh, drafted by the Chief Information Officer Strategy Council. There are standards body from um, Standards Council of Canada. And the Standards Council of Canada is also working on a data collaborative uh, standard, uh, again, addressing these similar issues, more so on a, on a data, on overall data level around data governance. Uh, but most Hi, Piers. Piers. So if ever an organization asks us, well, are you, you know, are you ISO 27001 certified, our, our technical response would be no. However, we do adhere to the principles and we would demonstrate to that organization how we do so. Um, there's, other, there's other standards. Uh, for example, there is the cyber essentials certificates that are available. Um, so, you know, there's each individual unit could go ahead and, and get certified under the cyber essential scheme. Um, that is something that, you know, Heloise and, and I, we have certainly worked on for, for minimal projects uh, her office manages. 
Uh, so there, there are opportunities for us to, again, rely on the existing standards that are out there, whether they're international, uh, Canadian-based or European-based, um, and leverage them to, to position ourselves as, let's call it, leaders in data privacy with respect to research uh, enterprise agreements. Thank you so much, Pierce. You've really helped me understand this uh, issue uh, uh, tremendously. I can see there's a lot more to understand and it's obviously a space we've got to keep watching and uh, we have to keep com coming to you with uh, when, when these things change. But so in my understanding is that there's, there's personal responsibility, there's institutional responsibility and we're complying with provincial, federal and international regulations. Is there something that that uh, we can put in place? Are you working on anything which uh, could help us uh, uh, um, provide that consent uh, um, interaction or that uh, the consent so that we can interact with our counterparts with uh, with a level of confidence? Yes. Yeah, so one thing that I am working on is I am uh, I am alluded to an informed consent or express consent form. So I will be working on one of those. Um, it will be very much stylized off of what an, uh, a research ethics clearance informed consent would look like. You know, truly identifying all the possible risks with respect to data privacy that may or may not occur. Um, with that document, I will be consulting with my colleagues uh, in ITS uh, just to make sure that you know on the technical security safeguard side what's being stated is is accurate uh aside from that uh we again we do have our data protection agreement that we can always rely on and leverage as a starting negotiating point if we are relying on again this legally binding instrument whether it's an mou or contribution agreement so there there are different tools we do have in the existing toolkit um, that may be able to help researchers with respect to their uh, projects moving forward. The last piece is that I also do sit on Carleton's research ethics board, so um, I am able to give that advice specifically on the research project if it is uh, being cleared through at least Carleton's research board. So I have multiple eyes on the issue that will be able to bring a holistic um, approach to the situation and hopefully overcome uh, the challenges we, we are currently facing and we are certainly going to face in the coming months. Well, thank you, Pierce. You've uh, outlined why we keep our uh, keep the, the path to your office uh, uh, regularly crossed. Uh, we will continue to work together on these issues. Obviously, each project is unique and comes with uh, its own set of challenges. But thank you so much for being a colleague who stands there and gives us advice and uh, you know knows this uh, area with such expertise. I really appreciate your contribution today. Well, thank you, Heloise. It was uh, great being here, and I uh, appreciated the invite and talking about the, uh, the issues. Thank you so much.